Welcome to Envision, fostering a community for change. Your co-hosts are Ronnie Langer-Kroger and Thomas Rosenberg. In today's program, you'll meet fascinating people who are implementing innovative ideas to make a difference both locally and globally. Now, here is your host. Hello, I'm your co-host, Thomas Rosenberg, and welcome to the show. There are many aspects to building a regenerative community. One part is cultivating and leveraging the gifts and skills inherent in your community. To cultivate and leverage these gifts, it's essential to have a broad-based stakeholder engagement effort that highlights both the needs and the desires of the community members. While what's needed and what works in each community will be different, combining the stakeholder engagement with support from government, finance, and other institutions will shape a supportive and positively reinforcing framework. This framework is sometimes referred to as an entrepreneurship ecosystem. The entrepreneurship ecosystem is typically defined as having six major pillars containing 11 key elements. The six pillars are policy, finance, culture, supports, human capital, and markets. Under policy, governmental support and leadership are essential elements. The finance pillar encompasses all forms of capital, from friends and family to private equity. The culture pillar supports entrepreneurs with encouraging societal norms and success stories. The supports pillar includes everything from physical infrastructure like internet connection to non-governmental organizations and supporting professions such as legal, accounting, and technical advisors. The human capital pillar covers both the overall labor market in the community as well as the educational institutions that offer various pathways to cultivate the required and desired capabilities. The markets pillar includes early customers, distribution channels, and networks that facilitate the purchase of local goods and services and provide support to the entrepreneur. When these elements come together in your community's unique way, the community thrives. However, these ecosystems have not been as inclusive as they could be and have frequently overlooked communities of color. Research suggests that sometimes an entrepreneurship ecosystem develops in unexpected places due to the efforts of an organization that nurtures the development of all six of these pillars in a variety of ways. This organization is called an ecosystem entrepreneur. Today's show profiles one example of an ecosystem entrepreneur, the Boston Ujima Project, that is building community through a democratic community self-investment process. My guest is Lucas Turner-Owens, fund manager for the Boston Ujima Project. Lucas, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks, Thomas. Yeah, it's great to be on. Wonderful. Glad you could be with us today. So, Lucas, could you start off by explaining what the Boston Ujima Project is? Sure. I think the best way to describe the Boston Ujima Project is to actually take a step back and talk about the problem that we're trying to solve before diving into the ecosystem approach that we take. Um, So... We try, first we're acknowledging that within impact investing and economic development, there isn't, as we see it, sufficient beneficiary engagement. Um, There's often services and products that are delivered to communities where there's a lack of resources for entrepreneurs or maybe specific programs that are meant to benefit communities that are traditionally underserved. But there isn't often a co-visioning that takes place with those community members where the question is asked, what's really needed here and what will work and what do you think is lacking? Um, So we're stepping in to solve that problem by creating a fund that can support entrepreneurs of color in working-class communities in Boston. And we involve community members in a, a few different ways. We ask them to suggest businesses that we should invest in. We ask them to actually invest in the fund themselves by lowering the threshold to investment into our fund to Uh, something really affordable. Uh, And then we also ask them to shop and support those businesses where where they are retail. So there's a number of different ways that we ask community members to get involved with the Ujima Project, but the basic mission is that we're trying to say, uh, do nothing about us without us. Okay. Tell me more. That sounds like do nothing without, say that again, do nothing without us. Uh, do nothing about us without us. So we're trying oh, to get okay. away from uh, from economic development and impact investing approaches that are really well-intentioned but often don't involve folks in the design aspect of the program or of the investment. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, happy to tell you more. So we have an investment process that starts where we go into the neighborhoods that we're targeting, which in our case is Roxbury, Mattapan, and Dorchester, uh, neighborhoods that have traditionally seen less small business investment where uh, average income and uh, average wealth is really low. And to just show what I mean by that, in, in, in Boston, 
the average um, wealth for a white family is $248,000. The average wealth for a black family is $8. So in these communities, when we talk about a gap, this is a really extreme gap. Uh, it, it's it's kind of hard to fathom, and it's, it's one of the highest in the country. Um, Boston was actually recently ranked as the most unequal city in the U.S. So we're targeting Mattapan, Roxbury, and Dorchester because those are the areas where we're seeing concentrated poverty, concentrated lack of opportunity, and a lack of investment. Um, to just sketch that out a little further, in Mattapan, one of those cities I mentioned, uh, in 2014, I think $6.4 million went into funding small businesses, whereas in downtown Boston there was $148 million of small business investment. So the, the gap in both investment and in wealth is really large. And I, I highlight those two examples because when you think about what it takes to start a vibrant ecosystem for entrepreneurship, it, it often takes capital, policy, culture, all those pieces you mentioned. But when it comes to finance, uh, if you're too small for the banks, then you typically turn to your friends and family. And if your mm-hmm. friends and family have an average net worth of $8 and there isn't enough money to get your business off the ground before it can even be considered by a bank or by a venture capitalist. So we start in those three communities and we go into them and we say, what, what's lacking? So we do that through a process where we ask people, what do you need? What businesses do you love that are here already? And what businesses do you want to see replaced? So that's mm-hmm. step one in our process. We, we start with that neighborhood assembly process. Step two, we say, okay, if we were to find and fund these businesses that we've highlighted or replace one and convert it into something we need, what kind of standards do these businesses need to uphold in order to really satisfy uh, our, our criteria? And that criteria is set by community members, by the folks in the neighborhood that we're soliciting for their expert opinion, right? Their lived experience is an expert opinion. And that's, that, that's again, getting back to our, our mission. We, we, we see these fields as kind of traditionally technocratic and not, uh, you know, assuming that the smartest people in the room are going to come in from outside and fly in as consultants. But we believe there's real subject matter expertise in these neighborhoods. So we start with the neighborhood assembly. Then we say, what standards do these businesses need to uphold? And that could be paying a living wage. That could mean ethical supply chain. That could mean certain environmental practices. So um, that's step two. Mm-hmm. Step three is saying, now we want to uh, produce sort of an, an RFP that says, okay, we know we wanted a local grocery store, for example. That came out of the discussion where we asked folks, what do you love? What do you need? What do you want to replace? And we know that that store has to uphold a certain set of standards. Now let's issue an RFP to the city of Boston, to all of our members, and say, do you know anyone who's trying to get a grocery store off the ground that does look like this? And uh, because we don't want to just assume that we'll know the best business or the best entrepreneurs through our networks, we want to employ the networks of all of our members and um, do some crowdsourcing for our pipeline. So that's step three, is issuing that RFP. Uh, Step four, we receive those applications we find some on our own, and that's part of my work as the fund manager is going to different accelerators and incubators and locating these entrepreneurs who might satisfy that criteria for that neighborhood, and we start vetting them. So we look at their mm-hmm. financials, we do due diligence, we go through a whole host of criteria on our side to make sure that this is a viable investment. Then it leaves my hands and goes over to our investment committee, which is made up of community members, but also of investment professionals, former entrepreneurs, um, folks that have been doing this work a long time, who can put that due diligence through a second level of scrutiny and say, you know, we want to make sure that these are good opportunities that are, um, you know, viable for the fund. Then the step after that is the investment opportunities that have made it through both screens come back to the community, the same community we originally polled, and we say, now we want you to vote on where we actually allocate this capital. And that's mm-hmm. the, that, I mean, a lot of things that we're doing in this chain that I just laid out are pretty revolutionary. They haven't been done before, but that piece in particular has never been done before. Allowing mm-hmm. folks, allowing unaccredited investors, giving as little as $50, a chance to vote on what we're doing with this entire pot of money and giving each investor one vote, regardless of the size of their contribution, is really fundamental to our approach, and it's... Uh, Brings, us, brings you back to my first point, which is we're, we're trying to do something that's more democratic uh, right. at its core. Sure. No, that makes total sense. Well, thank you very much for, for diving in a little bit more into the weeds. I want to circle back to that later. But I was curious, you know, th- 
Boston Ujima came out of the collective work or, or initiative of several organizations. And could you just outline broadly like, who are the founding organizations and uh, when the project came together? Yeah. So the conversation started in 2014. Um, Aaron Tanaka, who uh, was working then at the Boston Impact Initiative and Impact Investing um, firm based in Boston that has really similar values to ours. Uh, he was the managing director there when he started thinking about, you know, what is it that the city needs to be really catalytic and, and, and to, to transform this space. And uh, folks met, and when I say folks, I should really sketch those out. So uh, one big support of our work has been City Life, Vita Urbana, which is a nonprofit that um, pursues housing justice in communities uh, that Ujima has also focused on, like Dorchester, Mattapan, and Roxbury. Um, we also had support from local entrepreneurs. Um, one entrepreneur uh, comes to mind is Glenn Lloyd from um, City Fresh Foods. And um, we turned to these different entrepreneurs and nonprofits, grassroots organizations, and uh, folks in finance and said, you know, what is this, what is what do we need? And first folks said, okay, maybe it should be a bank, maybe it should be a credit union. Finally, we came to a fund because the, the realization was this will be the easiest to get off the ground and it'll, it'll fill the financing gap that I mentioned a little earlier. Mm-hmm. So, but that wasn't also their, I guess, supporter was this later when the, the universities and the hospitals and some of the others in the neighborhoods started to join in with some of their own activities and their supply chain, their purchasing, et cetera. Was that after 2014? Yeah, I'd say that came a little later. Uh, So Aaron, who I mentioned, uh, who sort of uh, began this brainstorming process and has created a lot of this foundation and outline for it that we're following, um, he had been doing work separately around the pilot program in Boston, which stands for Payment in Lieu of Taxes, where mm-hmm. large nonprofits like universities are given, um, you know, really steep tax cuts. Um, and in exchange, they're asked to give payment to certain community-based organizations or to support some uh, local entrepreneurs. However, not many of those universities do. So what Aaron had been leading in that would work to um, make the pilot program a little more real and a little more um, impactful and so he had already, I say that because he'd already been starting conversations with Northeastern University, with MIT, um, with some of the eds and meds in Boston, like Longwood and Children's Hospital and uh, Brigham and Women's and Temple Israel. Um, so we had been doing some of that work and that, the, the network and the relationship building had already happened. So when Ujima was ready to get off the ground in 2017, um, Aaron was able to go back to those folks and say, okay, now we have a, an easy way for you to plug in. Um, and what that looked like for us was something called the Business Alliance, where we, uh, I mentioned earlier, we have a set of standards that we try to um, have our businesses uphold. And not uh, only businesses that we invest in uh, will be a part of this Business Alliance that, where, where they meet those standards. So the, the basic idea is we are sort of screening businesses in Boston as social enterprises and then identifying the ones that are really great and then helping anchor institutions find them so that when they need to do their next uh, big catering buy or when they need to hire someone to do their composting, they can come to us and we can act as the convener and say, here are 20 great businesses you should know about that will help you meet your needs. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very helpful. So where did the idea of Ujima come from originally? I mean, not just the, the that it would be a fund, but like, where did this whole – because Aaron had this idea, but did he seek the name obviously came from something. So I was curious, which means collective work and responsibility. So is there yeah. a place that this, that, that, that came from and, and are there examples that, that Boston or Aaron was holding up as, as in the, oh, something to follow? Yeah. So I should just, the caveat that I, I came on board in August of 2017, so after a lot of this brainstorming had been done, so it's a little hard mm-hmm. for me to say, but, but like you did just point out, Ujima comes from one of the seven principles of Kwanzaa. It stands for collective work and responsibility. And um, 
I think what Aaron was thinking, if I can you know, speak for him, is that he, he was seeing a lot of different strategies being employed by different base-building organizations, different impact investors, different folks in Boston's um, economic development offices and small business office. So this is not so much um, just a new approach or a new idea. It's us, it's us stitching together seven or eight existing ideas that we thought were really great and putting them all to work together. Fantastic. Fantastic. We're speaking with Lucas Turner Owens, fund manager for the Boston Ujima Project, and we'll be right back after a short break. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Is your community on a journey to build consensus or define a vision for the future? Do you want your organization and people to flourish? Are you feeling burnt out or seeking guidance to leave old patterns of thinking and being behind? Thomas Rosenberg has international experience in change leadership, consensus building, and organizational transformation. He guides leaders and change makers, their organizations and communities on their journeys of transformation. For more information and to contact him, visit Regenerate.coach. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though, so this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What's your coffee story? The one that defines who you truly are in a relaxing setting. It's where you share your memories, plan for the future, and talk about the now. My favorite coffee story is here with host Aniko Samoji. We invite you to listen in and share your coffee stories too. Bring your friends or just stop by as we talk about coffee and the inspiring stories that touch our lives every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Envision. To find out more about the program or to leave comments and questions, please visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Envision Regenerative Communities. Now back to this week's show. Welcome back to Envision. We are here with Lucas Turner Owens, fund manager for the Boston Ujima Project. And we were talking about what inspired the establishment of the organization, what drives their work, and some of the benefits and challenges of developing entrepreneurship ecosystem. So you mentioned earlier, Lucas, that a little bit about why these communities and that there is a stark difference between, say, the the net value or sorry, the net value, the net worth of of someone in Matapan, for example, versus downtown Boston and, and just these orders of magnitude of difference in wealth and, and inequality. And so I was curious, how did you start with engaging the community and, and how have you, how has Ujima structured its outreach and community member engagement? Sure. Um, so I think that we are generally taking the approach um, throughout our organization that we, um, again, are not the smartest people in the room, that we can benefit by building on the work that's already been done and pulling from the knowledge that is already existing in Mattapan, Dorchester, and Roxbury. So what I mean by that is that when we want to reach folks, we don't just uh, turn to social media and 
um, try to host an event all on our own, we look to partners and grassroots organizations that we respect. So to give an example, uh, before joining Ujima, uh, I was a volunteer with a group called Reclaim Roxbury. And Reclaim Roxbury is a really uh, incredible organization led by two friends of mine, um, Armani White and um, a guy named Mike uh, from uh, ACE, which is a nonprofit in Boston that does environmental justice work. And um, the two of them were focused on the lack of affordable housing in Roxbury and how um, with new plans for the city, specifically for an area called Dudley Square, there was going to be an influx of new housing, but none of it was going to match the uh, current incomes of folks that were living there. Um, I think 50% of folks in Roxbury were earning below $30,000 a year as of the last census, and um, the new housing was going to give that population about, I think, 5 or 10% of the new housing that was coming in. Most of it was geared towards folks making over 70 80% of area median income, which in Boston is $108,000. So this was not affordable housing. It was only uh, affordable in its name, but not in reality. So I was volunteering with them, and they would host these meetings with like 20 or 30 people, and um, they started to grow. It became 40 people, 50 people. Then they hosted an event in the library talking to folks about gentrification and about understanding their rights and the levers that they could pull within city government. And that event pulled about 150 people. Wow. So... I say all that to say that when we want to reach folks in Roxbury, we don't just say, okay, we're going to go out and do it. We want to partner with the Reclaim Roxburys in our community. So, um, so we do. We partner with Reclaim Roxbury. We partner with organizations like ACE, which I mentioned, or focused on, uh, ACE is focused on environmental justice. Um, to give an example, they did a study that I was a part of years ago, maybe 10 years ago, uh, measuring diesel truck pollution in Mattapan Square and finding that there is a disparate amount of diesel truck activity in Boston's communities of color, and as a result, windowsills were lined with soot, and diesel fumes were like thick in the air, and that wasn't something that you'd find in Boston's suburban communities. It was just uh, yeah, a, a real disregard for uh, folks that lived there, and so we uh, ace petitioned to get the city to issue particulate matter air filters that could go on those trucks. So I'm, I'm just trying to spell out some examples of the really powerful grassroots organizing work that goes on in Boston and how Ujima tries to find those orgs that have that buy-in from the community and then ask them to co-host those neighborhood assemblies I mentioned earlier so that we can get the kind of turnout and the kind of buy-in that we need. What was the response to some of the early conversations? Because I imagine it took a while to overcome some skepticism. I mean, yes, you're, you're using partners to help you bring people together and what was there skepticism in the community when you when you first raised the the idea of of developing what is now the Ujima project um it's a great question i i don't know if i can answer it uh because i i've only seen the response over the last four months and right. it's been really positive i think the okay. one the one challenge that I've seen is that um, we're really encouraging folks to dream really big. And I think traditionally the, the community engagement process doesn't really encourage that in a meaningful way. It, it sort of says, tell us what you'd like to see, and then that feedback is taken and it's absorbed up into almost a vacuum because those community members don't see what happened with their feedback. The city just asks them to come out, they say their thoughts, and then they don't hear uh, what happened with that plan. So sometimes I say that to say that sometimes when we ask folks, you know, what do you want to see in your community? Um, we, we, I think it's tough for folks to really embrace how radically we're trying to think. Um, not, not, not tough for the folks because they don't have those great ideas, but just it's, it's not the traditional city planning process. Um, right. but, but I think overwhelmingly people are excited about this idea and, um, are looking for this kind of investment opportunity so that they can, you know, have a stake in what's happening right down the street from them. Mm -hmm. you've, you've had already two community conferences, one in 2016 and, and one this past September. So is there going to be another one next year, this year, you know, or? Yep. Yeah, there, there will be as well as more neighborhood assemblies. Um, so we have neighborhood assemblies that I mentioned. We also have general assemblies. Um, and, uh, uh, yes. So the short answer to your question is is yes, and um, 
I can describe those a little bit, the one in 2016 and the more recent one we had in September of 2017, if that'd be helpful. Yes, yes, please do. That would, I think that would be of interest. So in 2016, we had our first kickoff event. Uh, we were able to raise $10,000 from residents of Boston. I believe it was about 180 folks who contributed. Um, and we got matching funds from LISC uh, for another 10000 And then we gave that combined $20,000 out through Kiva uh, in the form of 0% interest loans to five entrepreneurs. So just to give some color to that, one entrepreneur was called, um, his business rather was called Bowdoin Bike School. The entrepreneur's name was Noah Damore. And his business was focused on teaching folks how to repair bikes. He also sells bikes. And um, he put his business in a place where there wasn't much thought about bike access. Um, that's typically something that uh, I think is seen in areas that are gentrifying uh, and is sort of less of a priority in areas that aren't. And Noah was saying, you know, I think bikes are great. I think everyone should know how to fix one. And, and um, I think it could be a fun activity for young people. And so he created this space that's not just a store. It's more of an experience. Um, and he asked for money from us to buy a point-of-sale system, like a, like a square card mm-hmm. reader. So that's one example of the kind of effect that the funding we had um, had on an entrepreneur, and there were, there were four others as well. Awesome. Awesome. Could you – obviously, with, with working with this wide range of, of community members, there's financial literacy and education required. So could you explain how you're approaching financial literacy and education and addressing both community investors and business owners? Yeah. Um, so that is a huge piece. Um, I, I come from that background. I, after college, worked for uh, about four years in Washington with a nonprofit focused on financial education. Um, my role was more focused on advocacy within the federal government, but I also would go out in the classroom. And um, one thing that was really hard uh, was to get people to realize that the curriculum, the content was for their benefit. I think when when you start talking about financial education terms, people's eyes can glaze over because it just seems so foreign and it's and it's not empowering. Some of the language is, it feels like a barrier the moment it comes out of your mouth. So when I was talking to high school kids, I, I would go in there trying to get them excited about the end result. Like if you want to understand how to get a car or how to get a house or how to get in the stock market, here's the language that will empower you, you know, the, the tools that will empower you on that journey. But it was, it was a tough sell. So I say that to say that um, that is a, a challenge that I think we're going to, that we're taking really seriously and thinking kind of innovatively about, but it's, it's, it's no small piece of this puzzle. So I'll speak to the community side and then I'll get to the, the entrepreneur side in a second. Um, because we're constructing a fund and we are asking folks to not just invest but also vote on where we allocate our funds, dollars, we have to walk them through what all the language means and a little bit about how to evaluate a business. Um, before we could start that, we also had to decide what our terms would be. Uh, that's another thing that we allowed or you know, embraced community input around is um, what will the terms of this fund be. So we did that by hosting an online workshop where through Facebook and through um, an online polling service, we asked folks to log in and weigh in around different pieces. So we asked them, you know, what kind of, what form of collateral should we take when we're doing debt investments? Um, and we gave like five examples. Um, one, for example, was let's say you're a farmer and you have two tractors and some land and you're applying uh, to a fund to get a third tractor we could only collateralize that new piece of equipment but not existing. So that's one example. Another example is we would collateralize all your existing assets. Another example is we would do a sort of a revenue share, royalty financing, where we take a percentage of your new profits. Um, So we we laid out those examples of types of collateral uh, all the way down to no collateral and asked folks to vote. Um, And we moved through different pieces of what will ultimately become our term sheet and ask for that kind of input. So that's where the financial education conversation started uh, since I came on. The next step, what we're doing in this year, is going to be moving folks through all the different pieces of language and types of analysis that we're going to be doing about the businesses. So walking folks through what, what does debt mean? What does equity mean? 
Um, what does it mean to uh, expect a certain amount of interest? What is compound interest? And just, you know, terms that will be relevant as they follow their own investment into the fund. Um, so that's what we're doing in terms of community investors. We're, uh, we're walking folks through the process, but we're trying to always tie it to their experience. You know, I think that where this stuff gets lost is if it's just floating around in theory. So we're trying to make it all really relevant to their user experience as they invest in the fund. Mm-hmm. For entrepreneurs, I think we're just trying to show folks what else is out there, what, what else in the capital landscape exists so that they know where we fall. Uh, we, we are aiming to have our interest rates not exceed 8%, and that's not typical. So we want to show folks, you know, here's what's out there, here's what you could get, here's where we fall, um, here's the average size of loan we tend to give or the average size of equity investment we tend to give. Um, so we're just walking folks through the process really transparently. Uh, I think that's, that's sort of where financial education starts for our, our entrepreneurs. Super. So let's talk a little bit more specifically about your role as fund manager. What does that entail? A little bit of everything. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I am meeting with the business owners. I am helping to design this financial education content. Um, I'm managing our portfolio and our investments and our repayments. Um, so I think that the easiest way to think of it is sort of the, the community outreach, partnerships, um, direction and thought leadership really comes from our director, Nia Evans, and the stuff that pertains to the fund is sort of falls under my purview. So um, I've been really focused on launching the fund, which is going to be a charitable loan fund, which is a type of 501c3, and understanding just, uh, you know, making sure that we're really tight on the legal side of that with regards to registration and compliance. And uh, that's been my focus the last few months. Going forward, my focus is going to be on building pipeline for us, which means talking to our business alliance entrepreneurs and saying, who among you need some money and, and what kind of money you're looking for and um, are these terms acceptable? Then going a step out to saying, okay, business accelerators, incubators in Boston, who do you know that's come through your program that needs money? Then a further step out saying, community members, who do you know in your neighborhood who's looking for money? So that's that, that's our, our sort of pipeline process. And then uh, I guess my time will sort of focus more on deal structuring, uh, closing documents, getting the dollars out of the door uh, in the second half of 2018. Um, and the financial education is just kind of a constant. That's always going on. Right. Yeah, that's always going to need to be there. So once the the money is going out the door in the second half, how are your funds going to be structured? You know, what, what you talked a little bit about asking people for their input on how it's structured or, or what's wanted, but you know, what, you know, debt versus equity or. Sure. Uh, uh, we're, we're looking to do more debt than equity. So about 80% debt, 20% equity is our goal. Um, we are structuring the fund in three buckets. So the first bucket is for unaccredited investors. This is me talking is just how we're taking money in. Mm-hmm. So we're going to take money in from non-accredited investors uh, in this first bucket for community members, and uh, the threshold is really low, as I mentioned, like $50 um, is what we're aiming for. The second bucket is for institutional capital, so money coming in from high net worth individuals, from philanthropies, from foundations, and our thinking is that this money will really amplify the amount of money in the first bucket. Um, the terms will be slightly different for those that invest in the second bucket. So they'll receive a little less interest uh, and they'll be invested for a slightly longer period of time. Um, but we think that for a lot of folks who are used to issuing PRIs and making grants, that this new structure, this kind of a fund, will be exciting to them. And um, you know, just the chance to get their money back and uh, not lose it all is, is going to be uh, exciting to folks. And then in the third bucket, uh, we're taking money into our loan loss reserve. And the thinking there is that we want to protect folks who've invested in that first bucket, those community members with, you know, an average net worth of $8, we, it would be tragic if they lost any of that money. So we want to be able to partially securitize the investments mm-hmm. made by community members with money raised into our loan loss reserve. Our goal is to raise between 2 and, and $5 million into the fund. Um, and I think the ratio we're looking for is about, mm, I'd say about, one-fifth into the first bucket, 
about three-fifths into that second bucket for institutional capital and about one-fifth into the loan loss reserve. Wow. Well, two and a half to $5 million would uh, have a tremendous impact for sure. Yeah, so, yeah it, it, it's, it's exciting. Yeah. yeah, it really is. So how would this fund compare to the, one, the runway project? So we are huge supporters of what Jessica Norwood is doing at the Runway Project, um, and I think a lot of her investments focus on a specific type of entrepreneur, whereas mm-hmm. we focus on a spectrum of entrepreneurs and investment types. Um, so um, I think where Jessica's sweet spot is, where the Runway Project's sweet spot is, is focusing on entrepreneurs who need money for that friends and family round, who right. want to get something off the ground. Um, we're also looking to existing businesses and to partnering with other folks to make real estate investments. Um, we're also looking to make equity investments. So um, we, we're, we're, we're doing things across asset classes and looking at different types of entrepreneurs. And I think that's sort of what distinguishes us. And, and it also seems, sounds like you're doing something that's a little bit later stage. It's, it's past friends and family. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Super. Wonderful. Well, We have to take a short break. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Is your community on a journey to build consensus or define a vision for the future? Do you want your organization and people to flourish? Are you feeling burnt out or seeking guidance to leave old patterns of thinking and being behind? Thomas Rosenberg has international experience in change leadership, consensus building, and organizational transformation. He guides leaders and change makers, their organizations and communities on their journeys of transformation. For more information and to contact him, visit Regenerate.coach. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Envision. To find out more about the program or to leave comments and questions, please visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Envision Regenerative Communities. Now back to this week's show. Welcome back to Envision. We are speaking with Lucas Turner-Owens, fund manager of the Boston Ujima Project. So Lucas, how replicable do you think this model is thus far? I think that we really benefit from being based in a city with very large anchor institutions because when we invest in a, and, and I'll, I'm sort of getting to that answering that question in a bit of a roundabout way. When, when we invest in businesses, we 
think about how to wrap around them and support them so that they can succeed. Um, and it's one thing to do that with a retail business, right? If we invest in a restaurant, we can tell our, we have about 300 members now, we can tell our 300 members, go to that restaurant and, and buy this. There's a special deal for your GEMA members, and we can help boost that restaurant's revenue for the month. Um, it's a little trickier when you're supporting business-to-business um, enterprises. So one example is a composting company that we support called Cerro, uh, a really innovative composting um, and organic waste business that um, is, is you, you could talk, I could talk about them for a while, but the point is um, it's tougher to f- direct our members to support Cerro. But we, as I mentioned, because we're in Boston, are situated in the middle of a lot of big anchor institutions that do a lot of buying. So MIT, for example, does about $1 billion of uh, procurement each year. So we can uh, work with those anchor institutions and try to direct their spending towards businesses that we've supported. And I think that's a pretty unique advantage that, that, that we benefit from in, in Boston. What's 100% replicable about what we're doing is the community engagement process, um, saying when money is available, we should collectively decide on how it should be allocated. It's the participatory budgeting aspect of our work, and it's 100% replicable. Um, but I do want to be real and acknowledge that we benefit from certain resources. We also have great volunteers, which are a strong asset, and I think that uh, anyone who's thinking about doing this should think about where they can draw significant human capital, because we we live and breathe off of that. We have volunteers from all universities in Boston, volunteers from grassroots organizations, volunteers from the neighborhoods where we're focused, and they carry a large percentage of our work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's huge. So if, if communities are interested in developing their own Ujima project locally, what do, you, what do you recommend they do? I think start by having a conversation with as many people from the neighborhood that you're focusing on as possible. And I think start by asking the question, what do you need that isn't here? What do you love that is here? And what do you want to replace? Mm -hmm. I think starting there will tell you a lot. Um, From there, I think you can understand what form your solution should take. And if it is uh, in the form of the Ujima Project, taking an ecosystem approach where we try to stitch together need with services and resources, um, then we can, we can certainly help guide that, that group on how to do it. Um, Aaron Tanaka, who I mentioned, is also the director and founder of the Center for Economic Democracy, and they are committed as an organization to helping folks replicate this model. So um, the short answer is reach out to us, uh, Lucas <laughs> at UjimaBoston.com. <laughs> Okay, super. Um, and what uh, are there other resources that you would recommend that people look into for for inspiration and 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 other knowledge? Yeah, I think the Working World's Peer Network is really inspiring. Uh, this is a group of local loan funds that are supporting cooperatives across the country, um, and really fully across the country, from Richmond, California, to. Um, New York to um, the Southern Federation of Loan Cooperatives. Um, it's it's a it's a network that focuses on supporting co-ops in particular because of their flat structure and because of their um, the opportunity for folks to build wealth who work there, uh, specifically in industries where uh, salaries are really low. Um, mm-hmm. So I think the working world's work is really inspiring, uh, and I think that in terms of resources, it's just important to do that kind of an asset map where you say what's around me and what can I uh, pull on uh, in terms of capital, in terms of knowledge, in terms of business support organizations. Um, I have a list of about 250 technical assistance providers that I'm working through now to figure out uh, how to connect an entrepreneur with a given resource. Um, And so I, I think, yeah, doing that asset map is really a critical part of this. Wow, that that's quite the database. What, yeah, what is, and, and, and but yeah, I want to on that point. We we have a business alliance that I mentioned earlier, made up of different entrepreneurs that we uh, know have really high standards. And this is what I mean when I say a lot of our work is carried by the volunteers and the folks that support us. I can present that database to those entrepreneurs uh, as I did in the last meeting and say, 
can folks take a look at this list and write in comments next to one, next to BSOs that they've worked with and say they were great at X or they were bad at Y. So I don't have to just call these folks up and ask them, you know, what are you good at, where I might get a totally biased answer. Um, I can ask the folks in our network and say, you know, what, what do you know about these different TA providers? And that, that speeds up the process. That, that, yeah, that's really, really helpful, having that crowdsourced information. What is one thought you'd like people to take away from this conversation? I think the main thought that I'd like folks to take away is that subject matter experts on community development are found within the communities that are being developed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. They're, yeah. Under respecting and, and lifting up that indigenous knowledge and wisdom. Exactly. Exactly. I think, um, yeah, that I, I will be excited to see this impact investing space and economic development space move towards more meaningful beneficiary engagement beyond the end result and mm-hmm. starting at the very beginning and bringing folks through the entire continuum because I think that that's how these programs and investments and businesses become sustainable and I think that's how you build knowledge and you build agency. So uh, I think my, my main takeaway is that, yeah. Yeah, super. So what is next for Boston Ujima? We are getting ready to launch our fund. So I would encourage folks to check out our website, ujimaboston.com. We hope to launch in the spring or summer of this year. Um, and as I mentioned, we'll be taking an investment in all three categories into our loan loss reserve um, from institutions, foundations, high net worth individuals, and also from community members in Boston. But if you live outside of Boston, you can still join us today and become a member. So visit ujimaboston.com to become a member no matter where you live, um, or you can email me directly with questions at lucas at ujimaboston.com. Excellent. And so how can people follow the story besides the the website? What other social media channels do you have? Sure. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Uh, we're really active on Facebook, posting videos of our events. So we had a lecture series recently with a professor from MIT talking about the intersection of race and money and uh, in the history of this country and Boston in particular. So you can find those great lectures and you can find our workshops uh, that are available online through our Facebook, which is uh, just Boston Ujima Project. Um, we'll, we'll get you there. Okay. Fantastic. Um, and you have Twitter feed as well, or? We do. Uh, it's uh, twitter.com slash Boston Ujima. Excellent. Excellent. And I'm going to back up uh, here just one moment. And what is one thought you, um, what is one lesson you, you've learned that you wish that you knew when you joined Boston Ujima? Mm. Um, it's a great question. I think, I mean, we've learned a lot. Uh, In the short time that I've been on board, we have been moving around the country, meeting with different folks. Um, But I think the the biggest lesson that I've learned is just constantly thinking about making this content and this experience engaging, fun, and accessible. Mm -hmm. And and the, the thought, the empathy, and the thoughtfulness that's required to get there. Um, It's one thing to come up with a a great, shiny plan. It's another thing to research it and support it with, you know, empirical evidence and get the backing of certain folks. But it's a totally different thing to match everyone's learning style and to match everyone's uh, entry point. So one thing that separates us is that folks leave our events and they say Ujima events are fun. And that's a real accomplishment for a group of folks talking about debt and equity, you know, and like, <laughs> and, and, so we, we need to keep it fun and we need to keep it accessible and engaging. And doing that is, uh, is a big part of our work. Mm, indeed. Well, and that brings it back to, to your financial education and uh, your, your literacy outreach. So I think that that's, that's you right. know, if you're making it fun and people, People are uh, are obviously enjoying the engagement and, and, and finding it very beneficial. That's right. And then that, that, that's how we get the realist feedback. That's how we get people to really open up and tell us what they're looking for. Um, mm-hmm. we, we, we can't make it feel like it's the same 
happy conversation that it's been. So right. that's, um, that's what we're excited about doing more in 2018. Sure. No, that makes sense. What's been the biggest surprise you've had uh, since you joined four months ago? Um, I think, hmm, I think just learning how much is possible. I think, uh, you know, I, I, I had the assumption that, you know, there, there'd be certain aspects of this that we would run into real walls with, and we really haven't. We, we've had to be creative, but, um, the, the sky has really been the limit for us in how we can construct this because we are the first to do it. And um, I've been really focused on making sure that we are compliant and that we are, uh, you know, really aware of what, what legal boundaries might exist. But um, that hasn't been as big a problem as I thought it would be. It's, it's, it's been more that we kind of can, can construct this to, to meet our needs, uh, which has been exciting and also challenging because there are so many options on the table in front of us. Um, but I think we've been pretty disciplined in, in sticking to using approaches that we know we can execute on and that leverage the strengths of our partners and our volunteers. Super. So beyond signing up and, and uh, becoming a member either locally or long distance, how, how can people support the Boston Ujima project? Are you accepting funding from outside looking, Boston? What, say that one more time. Are you are you accepting funding from outside Boston? We are, we are, and and that's really critical to help our work. Um, the operations of the Dreamer Project are separate from the fund and are uh, grant based, donation based. We are a nonprofit, so um, supporting our organization through our website, through donations, uh, is really really critical, and um, and really helps us uh, take this vision all the way through. Um, and please do follow our website, become a member, and join us uh, through our newsletter so that you can know when we're ready to actually start issuing notes. Uh, that'll be exciting, and we'll be taking in money from folks outside of Boston, to your point. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Lucas. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank Feel you. I, to- I really appreciate the chance to talk a little more about the work that we're doing. Yes, it's, it's really, really fascinating work. Feel free to reach out to Lucas with questions through the social media channels he mentioned. And lastly, I want to let everyone know that I'm accepting new coaching clients. So if you're seeking support for your own leadership development or your community's journey of transformation, feel free to reach out to me via email at envision at regenerate.coach. And you can see more information at my website, regenerate.coach. Thank you for tuning in this week to Envision. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future shows, visit our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Envision Regenerative Communities. For more information about today's guests and upcoming shows, please see our show page on voiceamerica.com. Be sure to join us again next Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a terrific week.